Hello, and welcome to the podcast for the journal Integrated Environmental Assessment and Management, better known as IEAM. I'm Jenny Shaw. The March 2017 issue contains an article that recommends approaches for evaluating ecotoxological hazards and risks from endocrine disruptors. It's the synthesis paper from a CTAC Pelson workshop and leads off a special series that includes four other review articles. Lead author Peter Matheson is an ecotoxicologist in the United Kingdom, and he's with us today to talk about the paper. Hi, Peter. Thanks for chatting with us today. Hi, Jenny. Thanks for inviting me. So your paper talks about both endocrine-disrupting and endocrine-active substances. What is the difference? This is quite crucial to this whole field. An endocrine-active substance is merely a substance which can interact with the endocrine system and really push it outside its normal limits. So it doesn't necessarily imply that there are going to be any harmful downstream effects, whereas an endocrine-disrupting substance is an endocrine-active one which is actually causing harmful effects at the whole organism level, harmful apical effects. And the key problem in this whole area is to make a plausible causal link between the mechanism of endocrine action and the adverse effects at the organism level. So then how do you usually identify one from the other? Well, that's the problem about uh, establishing this causal link is quite tricky. We're now using adverse outcome pathways quite a lot to kind of make the links, uh, the chain of circumstances linking the initial uh, effect on the endocrine system with the ultimate effect of the organism and the population level. We have to remember that for environmental organisms, our protection goal is not the individual but the population. But we use a variety of testing techniques. So at one end of the scale, we're using um, very basic in silico and in vitro methods. And at the other end of the scale, we're using complicated long-term life cycle experiments and multi-generational studies in some cases to fully tease out the long-term consequences of the perturbation of the endocrine system. Can you tell us about the goals of the workshop? They were apparently quite simple. The idea was to um, obtain a consensus of uh, international experts in this field. I think that was very important because there is two fields of thought, really, in this area, one of which says that there's no difficulty about conducting a risk assessment of an endocrine disruptor. Um, it's really, in effect, no different from any other chemical or only marginally different. And on the other side of the debate uh, is the per perfectly serious scientists who suggest that you cannot do this. The only way to uh, deal with these substances is to ban them. We felt that there was considerable scope for bringing the two sides together to achieve a consensus on how you actually conduct a risk assessment of an endocrine disruptor. The workshop groups evaluated six different chemicals uh, as case study, and this was kind of the core work of the workshop. So how did you... That's right. Sorry, how did you decide on these six in particular? Because there are so many out there. Absolutely. Well, we felt that we had to base the things that the workshop decided and, and, and agreed firmly in actual data. There was no point in talking in theory. And so we, um, as you say, we came up with six study chemicals. And the key thing here was that we uh, had to be data rich. 
we picked three six chemicals which were um, had different modes of action: an estrogen, a thyroid inhibitor, a steroidogenesis inhibitor, an androgen, a retinoid X receptor agonist, and an antiandrogen. So there were six different chemicals, but they all had very large amounts of data, and, and that was crucial. And the idea was to work through the data, try and evaluate how you would go about doing a risk assessment for these chemicals or indeed and deciding if it was possible or not. So it sounds like workshop groups quickly encountered the same problems in all of their evaluations, which are called cross-cutting issues in the paper. Can you talk a little bit about that? We rapidly realized that there were some common issues which are going to be encountered by all people who are trying to assess endocrine disruptors. Now, there were four major ones. The first is the um, difficulty in assigning endocrine-specific modes of action. So this is, for example, the confusion that could potentially be caused by a chemical that's causing systemic toxicity, for example, hepatotoxicity, instead of natural direct effect on the endocrine system. So a hepatotoxin could cause a, a reduction in the ability of a fish to produce vitellogenin in response to estrogen exposure because vitellogenin is produced in the liver. That type of thing, there are a number of uh, potential confusions and we, we try to tease all those out to uh, make it clearer the potential stumbling blocks um, which could make you think you had endocrine toxicity but in fact it was just systemic. And the second area concerns uncertainties in biological response. We often see with endocrine disruptors as delayed effects caused by exposure during transiently sensitive windows of sensitivity. Um, another issue is uh, non-monotonic dose responses, which potentially could trip you up when you're trying to predict no effect concentrations. So there are a number of biological properties of endocrine disruptors which are quite um, quite specific to endocrine disruptors, and um, which need to be dealt with when you're uh, when you're evaluating them. The third area is more of a methodological issue. Although we now have a good suite of testing methods available to us, the toolbox, as it were, is not complete in its entirety. In particular, there are some big gaps in the invertebrate group where we don't understand their endocrinology nearly as well as we do in the vertebrates. Really, at present, we're, we're less confident in um, evaluating endocrine disruption in invertebrates, and this is a field for considerable future research. The final issue is probably an issue which is um, shared with other non-endocrine substances, and that's extrapolating to the population level. What are population-relevant endpoints for endocrine disruptors? Uh, we went into this in some detail, and we also provided a lot of advice about how you, you can model potential population-relevant effects on the basis of laboratory data, which is, of course, all one will have. And there were a number of other cross-cutting issues with which we dealt, and the four accompanying papers go in great detail into uh, these issues and provide advice in, in most cases. We're pretty confident that um, we provided enough advice to allow people to do that and also to identify when they haven't got enough data. That's quite key. And that's something that I think a lot of uh, researchers are going to come across in this growing field, right? Sure. Plant protection products and biocides tend to have a lot of data generated already, whereas many industrial chemicals that are either have not been evaluated at all in any um, practical way or for which there's only a small data set available. And so uh, we anticipate that in the future, pretty well all chemicals will eventually at least be subjected to um, in silico and in vitro screening. 
and particularly high high throughput screenings such as been developed in the states to trigger or not a, a higher tier testing but at present uh, we believe that the recommendations that we've made are broadly applicable to chemicals but at present in a practical sense probably pesticides and biocides and certain pharmaceuticals which are really at center stage right now We've been talking about the environmental risks and hazards of endocrine disruptors and endocrine active substances, but endocrine disruption is such a hot topic in the media for human health. Is any of this work applicable towards human health? This is a a very interesting question. Um, I'm not a mammalian toxicologist, um, so it's hard for me to comment precisely here, but it has to be said that the work at this workshop and everything in the five papers that we've now published in IEAM explicitly avoided consideration of human risk. It was specifically and precisely focused on ecotoxicity. There are reasons why we haven't yet forged ahead with trying to do something similar for human risk. One of them is the fact that with ecotoxicity, we're concerned about protecting populations. We generally accept impacts on individual individual wildlife, but uh, for human beings, we will not even accept impacts on a single individual. We want to protect everybody, every individual in the population. So because the protection goals are different, it means that the approach has to be much more cautious for protecting human beings, more stringent, which is quite understandable. Also, the available test data differ quite considerably. So there may be considerable difficulties in extrapolating from our success here with uh, how you should deal with um, environmental species to the possibility in the future of doing something similar for human risk assessment. I wouldn't rule out the possibility uh, of that in the future, but right now um, I don't believe uh, we're yet in a position to do that. Would a mammalian toxicologist be interested in the approaches in the synthesis paper? I'm sure they would. I think the general approach, the conceptual way we went about the job, is applicable right across the board to both environmental species and to extrapolation from rodent data to humans, which is effectively what we're talking about. The general approach is the same, but uh, there are some relatively small but very important details in which the two um, approaches will probably differ. And uh, until those have been thrashed out, we certainly are not yet in a position to say that we can do this for human beings. Well, thank you so much, Peter. My pleasure. You've been listening to Peter Matheson discuss his article, Recommended Approaches to the Scientific Evaluation of Ecotoxological Hazards and Risks of Endocrine Active Substances. Access the article in the March 2017 issue of IEAM. Just go to ctacjournals.org. I'm Jenny Shaw, and thank you for listening to the IEAM podcast.